Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 25th, 2020, we continue our series titled, The Ideal, a study in Colossians. Today's sermon, The Ideal Self, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. Enjoy. I was thinking of something that Bob said when he was talking about the uh, election and praying, and he talked about the labels. And some of the labels that go on people for various reasons, um, there was an old, I call him an old dead guy, right? Soren Kierkegaard, who was a, a, a Danish man, uh, he, he coined this phrase, says, if you label me, you negate me. I want to add to that, not only can a label negate or take away from you, but it can also define you. And so as Christians, right, this label of Christian comes with this great responsibility. And in the text today, we're going to look at what it means to put off the old self and what does it mean to put on uh, Christ and have that label and carry that label of Christian. These labels um, back in 2004 was incredibly frustrating to me as I was coming off of one of my my many uh, responsibilities in corporate America and had just sold a corporation and uh, had a lot of spare time on my hands. And so I actually started looking up uh, the word corporation. What does it really mean? Or organization or company? And corporation, of course, just means it's a Latin, it comes from the Latin root. It means to combine into one body, to combine into one body. Or organization, also a Latin root, uh, means as a body of people working for a singular purpose. A body of people working for a single, singular purpose. Or maybe even the word company. We refer to symphonies or orchestras as companies. This French-English word means to, word means to uh, take multiple units, different units, that act together as one purpose. A band may have to play in absolute harmony together. If someone's playing a different note or a different song, it ruins the delivery of that. In this frustration that I had growing with corporate America, I set off because I had time on my hands and I wanted to simply just write a book about the need for transcendent purpose within the corporate workplace. Um, the book is, uh, it was titled The Heart of Business, and the book itself just deals with that simplicity, that as a Christian, I am a Christian first. As a Christian businessman or as a Christian pastor, it is my responsibility to glorify the person of Jesus Christ. And it becomes my purpose, and I shouldn't be swayed one way or the other. It led me down a path of reading Fortune 500's top 100 companies to work for. I believe it was 2004, 2005. And I set out on a journey where I wanted to interview every single one of these companies, whatever senior executive I could get a hold of, because I wanted to understand the common denominator between why are these companies rated the best companies to work for? What is it about them? And I'll never forget contacting one company. I believe they were number 16 on the list. And I got a hold, I called, this was the only company that I called and I got the front desk and I asked for the CEO. I asked for Patrick Flood. And I said, Patrick Flood, please. They said, hold. All of a sudden the phone rings. Guy answers, says, Pat Flood, how may I help you? 
I'm like, wait a second, you know, this is a publicly traded company, 1,200 employees, and I just went from zero guard to the CEO of this company. I explained to Pat what I was doing, and I wanted to interview and understand why his company was rated number 16 on the 100 best companies to work for. Why would people work for you as opposed to anyone else? He says, man, that's a great question. I have no idea. <laughs> he, says, he says, I'll tell you what, though. He says, I got an idea. Why don't I just email you the list of all 1,200 of our employees, and I'll give you their phone number to their office, and you can contact any or all of them as you please. He says, two rules. Number one, I did not give you this list. <laughs> number two, you share with me what you learned. I don't want you calling them and telling them that you talk to me and you want to know what their opinion is. I don't want them to know that I exist and I want you to tell me what they say. <coughs> Fantastic. I pick a random guy right in the middle of the list, a guy who is based out of Atlanta, Georgia, and I call him. He answers his phone. I explain to him what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and why I want to know these things. I want to understand what makes you work here. You could work at a myriad of different places. Why here? And the guy kind of laughs, and he says, oh, man, that's easy. He says, Patrick Flood loves me. I said, wow. I said, the CEO loves you. I said, are you pretty close to him? He says, you know, I've never met him. <laughs> He's never met him but yet he knows that Patrick Flood loves him. How is that possible? He says, because of what he does. Because of how he does it. It can't be anything other than the genuine care for people. He says, and I work here because that guy loves his people. That's this message today. When we start to understand that love is the great unifier, love is the binder that brings us all together. May we ourselves be a church, a body, a society of true believers as one body with one purpose to operate in harmony and unity together. If there's anything you walk away from today, I would pray that today you would walk away with that unity. Last week, Pastor Bob talked to us about the ideal security. Today, I want to talk about the ideal self. This person who is a follower of Christ, what must be done to represent yourself as a Christian? Bob said, what God has done for me in the past last week, what God is doing with me in the present, and he talked about what will God do with me in the future. Today, he told you that we need to be citizens of heaven. Our home is in heaven. As my grandfather told me before he went into surgery, before the very surgery that would take his life, remember, I was just visiting here. We are all visitors in this world with a kingdom that is ahead of us and eternity with our God through the person of Jesus Christ. We are one body, one purpose, operating in harmony. The presupposition to today's message is understanding who the letter is still written to. Back in Colossians 1, we discovered that Paul addressed the letter to the saints and to the faithful brothers and sisters. This is written to the believer. 
And in context, he's going to tell us and remind us, as Bob did last week, it presupposes what we should look at in our text today. In verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Or in verse 2, he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. You see, when we set our mind on the earthly things amongst each other, we become a hindrance. We prevent each other from actually being focused on above. Illustratively, we see where Jesus is talking to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 23, when Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It leads us to our point one today, which is that we must put to death earthly idolatry or worldly idolatry. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5 through 7, he says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, whatever is worldly in you. And he lists these attributes. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That word is there is an emphatic. It's not trying to become idolatry. It is idolatry. On account of these, because of this idolatry, the wrath of God is coming. Right? The wrath of God, which is being revealed from heaven, as Romans 1 tells us, is coming. It's not going away. He is coming, and he is coming to claim his own. He is coming, as we will see later, to separate the sheep from the goats. He is coming, and he is looking at the people that are his. And he is looking at the people and what they did with his gift of faith. But our point one is to put to death earthly idolatry. He uses these idolatries where he says sexual immorality. The Greek word here is pornea. It means all forms of sexual deviance, all forms of sexual immorality. It means in simplicity fornication. It means having sex outside of marriage. It means people who are having marital relationships while not being married or marital unfaithfulness. It is referring to prostitution. It is referring to adultery. It, in fact, covers all forms of sexual deviance. The brothels and the prostitution rings of that time used to carry the name pornea above the door so that you understood what happens in here. There's no limit to the sexual perversity. In fact, today, there is no difference than what it was then. We have gotten no more creative. We continue to reinvent the same pornea. He uses impurity here. This phrase is making a statement that says, a state of moral filthiness. I can't think about anything more than watching one more election or one more campaign and the moral filthiness that is going on in our world. 
where we're actually having a conversation as to whether or not abortion is not murder. This is filthiness. Or passion. The word pathos here means lust or sexual passion or inordinate passion. The requests of our world has an inordinate passion and a love for things that are not God. They are idolatrous. He combines two words here of evil desire, kakos and epithumia, and he's referring to desire, this evil desire, a longing, a coveting, a craving, a lusting, a context where the desire is immoral and sinful, centered on wickedness, and perversion. It is idolatry. Our desires that are more important than the one true God is idolatry. In fact, you can't violate commandments two through ten without first violating commandment one. Thou shalt have no other God but the one true God. The moment that I make my family more important than God, I enter into family altry. The moment that I make my work, my greed, my 401k, whatever it is, more important than God, I enter into idolatry in an inordinate passion. Or covetousness, simply the greed of our world. The greed that in fact is laid out in the commandments. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not want that which is not yours. You can't have my car, you can't have my home, you can't have my wife, you can't have those things because God gave them to me as a gift. And I can't look at anyone else's stuff and say, I want their stuff. But yet the keeping up with the Joneses mindset in our world is thriving and booming. Verse six, because of this idolatry, God's wrath is coming. We like to think that it's been stayed or that it's not coming. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, this God is a consuming fire and he is a jealous God that doesn't want to share you with anything. In his anger, in his righteous anger towards sinful disobedience is coming. And verse 7, of course, reminds us that in these we once walked when we were living in them, these idolatries. Positionally, as Bob explained last week, we understand that we no longer do this. But in practicality, and practically speaking, we do continue to do these things. In one sense, we have been saved because of the works and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But in my fleshly desires, I continue to be driven by my own idols. My heart is a manufacturing room for idols. So what do I do? Paul's going to tell us point two here is to put temptation away. You see, desire, as I said a couple weeks ago, is not the problem. What you do with the desire is because Satan or the evil one lures and entices us by our desire. So therefore I must put temptation away. 
In verses 8 and 9, it says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Sometimes this verse can be a bit confusing because doesn't God's word say be angry but sin not? So should I be angry or should I not be angry? I love if you're going to take Bob up on reading the Proverbs tomorrow on the 26th. In Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly. Next verse, 5. Answer a fool according to his folly. Which is it? What's the wisdom here? In the first proverb, we're taught that we ought not respond to a fool at his level. And we ought not allow ourselves to be brought down to the level of a fool by answering him foolishly. may want to stop responding on social media. (laughs) On the other hand, we are to answer the fool in a way that in fact gives him or her no dignity. There used to be a phrase that says, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. Because what you're saying is foolishness. A fool is to be dealt with as a fool. But we should not be made fools in that process or in that progress. We see a similar aspect of this, of course, in Ephesians chapter 4, where we seemingly have conflicting statements. Because in verse 26, 426, it says, we seem to be commanded to be angry. But in verse 31, we seem to be commanded not to be angry. Here's the solution. There's actually two kinds of anger. The anger, which is a manifestation of our old self, our fleshly desires, is the thing that we're to put off. The anger, which is a manifestation of God's righteousness, is what should be put on. We practically apply this to our everyday life. I don't need to, in fact, be tolerant of those who want to say that this is not sexual immorality because I say so. But if it is sexual immorality, then I am not to be tolerant to it. I'm also not here to engage with the fool who says that it's not. But I, in fact, live my life under the word of God. My motivation is Christ. My decision-making is his word. And my behavior outward is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To love God, to love people, to make disciples. Because verse 8 says to me, put them all away. All of these things that evoke in us, right? My desire leads me to a path where it takes me to anger. Let me give you a real simple formula. If you're angry, step back and ask yourself a simple question. What's blocking my goal? You're going to find that at most times it's your idol. I'm not getting my way, so therefore I'm angry. Or if you're filled with anxiety, it's because you have no clarity. There's an unclear goal. Or if you've reached hopelessness, it's because you're establishing an unrealistic goal. But these things are not the things that I need to put off. They're the things I need to put on. I need to recognize them as a warning from God because God gave me conscience. 
and he's warning me, Jeff, you're angry. Back up and ask yourself why. Oh, it's my idol. I'm going to turn and go the other way. Rather than insist upon my rights in my idol of respect or my idol of reputation or my idol of approval or my idol of control. You see, all sin results from idolatry. James 1, 14 and 15 tells us exactly how it happens. It says, but each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. But you have a period of time where you're just simply being lured. And that is your time to take those conscience issues and back up and say, I must take another path. I must put on the armor of God. I must put on my relationship with Christ and move forward to the glory of him. Whether it is anger or wrath or malice or slander or obscene talk, I must put these things off and cling to the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he simply warns us, do not lie to one another because idolatry and unrighteousness and lying breaks down community. It prevents the unity of the body. I love this idea of community. It's two words combined, common unity. Community. And as Christians, as an organization of Christ, our unity is Christ. And the command upon us is to love. Because he loved us, we now love. And this should, in fact, compel us outwardly to unify. This is why Paul goes to point three, be unified in Christ. In verses 10 and 11, he says, now that you have have done these things, now put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here, in this new self, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on the new self. You see, positionally, through the works and the righteousness of Christ, this has already happened. But he's actually calling us to something slightly different. You see, in the new creation, we have the inward movement of the heart and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is emphatically a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's already present. And in the inward movement of the heart, what God is saying to us here is that by God's grace, he's going to reveal sin. And your and mine responsibility is to in fact repent or go the other direction, to resist the temptation, to go away from it. And you go away from it by stepping out in faith in your trust and your dependence upon Jesus Christ. 
And then you experience the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience. And then inwardly, you rejoice. You have joy. And outwardly, the same Spirit is trying to show you that there's an outward movement that takes place as well. Inwardly, you get this salvation and sanctification begins. But as this sanctification begins, what Paul's really saying here, I pick up on in Luke 9, 23, where Paul says, if anyone would come after me, or Jesus is speaking here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, how often? Daily. And follow me. Put off the old. Put on the new. And take up the cross daily. What does that mean? It means outwardly God's grace is presenting before you the opportunity to love and minister to people. Like Operation Christmas, the boxes. A little girl on the other side of the world came to know Jesus Christ because someone packed a box and told her, my family is praying for you and we love you. Power of Christ, the power of the gospel as it goes out. But God works through us. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus. We must do whatever we can to not miss the opportunity of loving and ministering. And the only way you can love and minister is if you are to deny yourself and take up that cross daily. Step out in faith. Trusting God that even as I do this, as I risk or as I sacrifice, I sacrifice myself and then rejoice because God is in control of everything. And no matter whether people are accepting Christ or not accepting Christ, the issue is obedience. The issue is the gospel. The faithfulness of the saint, the faithfulness of the brother and the sister to simply move forward. To be unified. To renew your mind. To not be conformed to the world that says, protect yourself. Save enough money to retire. But instead says, put yourself out there in faith. Give everything you have to the poor and follow me. This renewed knowledge I love closing prayers with this 2 Peter 3.18 where it says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now, positionally, and to the day of eternity. To be kingdom focused, to look that is above, and to know that we are unified Paul lists out Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. He's covered everybody. And he's pointing to the fact that in the cultural times, there were people who looked down on other people. Because there was this contrast between Jew and Gentile, one who was born as God's chosen people, and another person who was not. 
And then he covers both of them when he says circumcised and uncircumcised. He's referring to proselytes and God-fearers. Proselytes are people in the early church, Judeo-Christianity, that went through a ritual process to become circumcised as a grown man so that they would bear the sign and seal of the covenant. And the uncircumcised were the God-fearers who said, I will submit myself to following this God. But they were uncircumcised. He refers to the barbarian. This is simply making a reference to someone who speaks another language. A foreigner. By language. I know how this feels, right? I've traveled to France in my inability to speak French, although they all know how to, right? They will in fact look at you and say, you do not speak French. <laughs> this is what he's talking about here. Because in that country, I am the barbarian. But if he is a brother in Christ and I am a brother in Christ, then we are one. The Scythian. This is the equivalence of today of saying, oh, well, God saved us. I think he's starting to do a work in some of those Hispanic people. The Scythian is a territory of ethnic difference. It's modern-day Mongolia. This is racism. We have plenty of it. We look down upon cultures that don't speak our language or maybe have a different pigmentation. He says to the slave, the person who's a bondservant, or the free, the person who has set their life in Christ, that Christ is all and in all. He's not making a statement of universalism, saying that Christ is in all humanity without exclusion. He's saying to the saints and to the faithful brothers, you may have differences, different opinions about different things. Opinions bring quarrels. But love brings unity. And it is our common unity of Christ that unites us together as one in that common unity, our community. His fourth point is that you must remember that you are God's chosen ones. Just as Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He wants to be clear of his sovereignty, of his holiness, of his perfect choice that he has made in those that he calls his. In verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive and above all of these, put on love. Put on love. Because this love is which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I work here because Patrick Flood loves me. Brothers and sisters, I work here because Jesus Christ loves me. And I love him back by doing as he commands me to do. I must take up that cross daily. I must put on the new self daily because the greatest of these right here is love. Greater than, above all, the gospel of God's love compels good works, good deeds. And these good deeds are the very thing that he's gonna use to validate your sincerity of faith.
Faith without works is a dead faith. You're not saved by these works. You're validated in your faith because of them. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. I'm going to look there in just a minute, and you'll see the action of love that takes place. Bear one another. Reconcile and restore with one another. Don't lose the unity and the harmony that is in the body. Put on love, for God himself is love. It is love that binds in perfect harmony. It is love that fulfills the law. And it seems like most weddings you go to, we turn to 1 Corinthians 13, right? 4 through 7, and also verse 13, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable and resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And out of faith, hope, and love, you should do these three. But the greatest of these is love. Is that how our faith looks? Is that how we act? Is that how we present the opportunity to love and minister to people? Because love here is a verb. It's not a label. It's not a noun. It's a call to action. Is a call to come alongside brothers and sisters who are ministering to people far and wide, to each other. It's as Thomas said a couple of weeks ago, the difference between the hand and the feet. Are you a hand or are you a foot? Are you one of the fingers? Which part of the body are you? And are you living that in love for one another? Because one day, just as Jesus himself said, he says in Matthew 25, I don't have it up on the board, but he says there, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we do all these things? And the king answers them, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He's looking at the love that you presented, the gift of faith that you were given, did you use it to advance his kingdom in loving one another? It is not my job to convince you, convert you, or convict you. It is not my job to save your soul. It is my job to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is my job to love God, to love people, and to make disciples. 
It is my job to behaviorally live the gospel in accordance to it being all about Christ in obedience to his word. You see, the final test is he says, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The final test is not going to be your membership at Highlands. It's not going to be your ability to memorize where God's word says what. The final test is your love of God. Was it true and sincere? Your love of people. You're going, therefore, and making disciples of all nations. I'm going to call upon the band to come up and We're going to enter into communion. We're going to do this in remembrance of the one who paid it all. The one who made it possible for us to be unified in this kind of love. In fact, if you didn't grab one of the little pre-wrapped ones, they look like this. Just raise your hand. I've got people that are handing it out right now. So if you didn't, just raise your hand. Doesn't mean you failed. Just put your hand up. And they're going to come and give you one of these pre-wrapped communion thingamajigs. And this particular thingamajig is designed just for people like me who have severe arthritis in their fingers. So it's incredibly difficult to get open. Once you separate the top, right, the top comes off and that's where you get to the bread, the little wafer. And this is the difficult part. Don't squeeze the juice as you pull this open. You'll have to walk out of here with the blood of Jesus all over you. So as you take that off, we grab our wafer. We reflect upon this great God who loves us, who set us free, who pursued us. This God this Jesus who said about the bread this is my body that is broken for you this offering of of sacrifice of himself so that every time we eat this bread we do so in remembrance of him and on the same night as he was betrayed not just by Judas but by all of us who once were them. He says, this is my blood. This is the new covenant. This is what I poured out so that you can have eternal life with Christ. Every time you drink of it, do so in remembrance of him. First John 4, 7 tells us, Beloved, let us love one another. 
for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for your truth that is in your word. I pray that we would put off the earthly desires, that we would put on Christ, and that we would love as he first loved us. May we live to his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. My fellow saints and faithful brothers and sisters, put off the old. Put on the new, but above all, love. Love God, love people, make disciples. You know, if you're struggling or you just want to talk, right, this is what I do, right? Call me. Call the church, book an appointment, come in, sit down, visit. Let's talk about the gospel and how you've been set free to thank our Lord by loving the opportunity to minister and love people. To God be the glory. Amen? I love you guys. I hope to see you soon. God bless.